Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have David Schneer on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Through Soviet Jewish Eyes, Photography, War, and the Holocaust. Most Americans will be aware that Jews were at the forefront of the creation of the thing we call Hollywood. They might not be aware that they were important also in the creation of the photographic media in Western, Central, and Eastern Europe. And as regards Eastern Europe, they were very important in the creation of photojournalism. This is really the subject of David's fine book. Now, the reason Jews were overrepresented in the media at this juncture is entirely bound up with a historical accident. Photojournalism and things like the movies were new, and these professions were unrestricted. That is, they had not been monopolized by cultural elites, and so Jews could go into them, and they did, and hence they were overrepresented. The subject of David's book, however, is the ways in which these Soviet Jews negotiated, created and negotiated, phonojournalism in a particularly tumultuous time. And this was the period between the revolution and the end of World War II. He takes the story a little bit farther, but it is a fascinating story of people trying to understand who they were to understand what they owed their cultural background and what they owed the state and really the project that they were involved in. And it's also about photography and the ways in which their own backgrounds and their attempt to negotiate these various questions affected what they shot and how they shot it and the way they felt about what they shot. There are a lot of fascinating things in this book, fascinating stories and anecdotes. And all in all, it's uh, just a terrific book for anybody interested in the history of Jewish affairs, the history of communism, the history of Russia, and the history of photography. It's, it's really a, a marvel of interdisciplinarity in that, in that sense. And I very much enjoyed reading the book and in talking to David today. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, David. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm glad to hear that. Today we're talking with David Schneer about his new book, Through Soviet Jewish Eyes, Photography, War, and the Holocaust. As I was telling David in the pre-interview, I have done some work with photography myself, not so much with photography, but with photographs. I started a project called Mechanical Icon, I guess it was a couple of years ago, with some students of mine where we took iconic photos, and we made very short videos about them. And it turns out that a couple of those photographs uh, are discussed in uh, David's fine book, and I highly recommend it for those of you that are interested in the history of photography and also in the history of Soviet Jewry and also in the history of the Soviet Union, because it's really about all of these things, which makes it a a fascinating read. I love the kind of interdisciplinarity of it. That's a word that's thrown out a lot, I think. But, you know, there's some art criticism in this book, and there is some history of communism in this book, and there is some, I guess what I'd call religious or ethnic history in this book. and there is a lot of interesting things about people's identity. I thought this was the most fascinating part of the book, is that he, David's very subtle about uh, discussing how people thought of who they are and how other people thought about them. So congratulations on the book, David. Why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I was born in Los Angeles, California, good old California, and I got interested in Russia actually pretty early in high school. I was uh, raised in the 1980s and went to the Soviet Union, when it was still the Soviet Union, on something called People to People International, which was a Cold War era way of building relationships between Soviet kids or Soviet teenagers and Jewish teenagers. Uh, Not Jewish, American, excuse me. And when I went there, I was there for three weeks and ended up having a love-hate relationship with the place, which I think is pretty common. Um, fascinated, um, found it oppressive, and wanted to keep studying it. So, I, <laughs> well, you know, what can I yeah, say? Right. I still remember we had lots of jokes about how Lenin's figure, Lenin's face, and the bust of Lenin was literally everywhere. And it was, this is something that a you know a nice sixteen-year-old suburban Los Angeles 
kid doesn't understand, but um, I was fascinated by. So I ended up started studying Russian in high school. We were one of the few lucky schools that had a pilot program to see if uh, not so not so hardworking high school students can learn challenging languages like Russian. And um, I ended up continuing to study it in college and studied abroad in Leningrad slash St. Petersburg and was actually living there when they took the sign down at the airport that had said Leningrad and mm. then said Petersburg and have been working on Russia more or less ever since. Mm. So it's been, a, it's been a long relationship with the place, with the culture. And I guess one could say it's, it's also a family connection since all of my grandparents were born in the Russian Empire mm. and left in the teens and 20s. Mm -hmm. So unwittingly, my trip in high school was in some ways a homecoming as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. So uh, then uh, you went on to graduate school. What did you uh, study there and um, that sort of thing? Yeah, I went, I went, I did my PhD at Berkeley. I actually did all of my degrees at the University of California at Berkeley. You know, it was, it was a great place and I was very honored to be able to do my PhD there as well. And continued studying this intersection of Russian history and Jewish history. And the nice thing about the Berkeley graduate program was that it was broad enough that I could really figure out what I wanted to do in, as you were saying earlier, an interdisciplinary kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, unlike some other programs where there's a much more traditional focus on um, chronological and spatial boundaries. So mm -hmm. I could do Russian and Jewish and modern European history, mm -hmm. which is what I had wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I ended up pretty quickly honing in on a dissertation topic, and it ended up becoming my first book on Yiddish culture in the early Soviet period, the late teens and 1920s, mm -hmm. um, asking what the Soviet government was doing by investing huge amounts of resources in these ethnic cultures. I was particularly interested in Yiddish culture, and it was coming on a wave of scholarship from the 90s that got very interested in uh, the relationship between Soviet Union, communism, and nationalism. Um, I'm thinking of, of work, and actually one of my advisors was Yuri Slovskin, who was mm -hmm. instrumental in, in starting that wave of scholarship. I was particularly interested in, not in state policy per se, but in the people who were carrying it out. So the people who were in the ethnic minority, in this case Jews, and what they thought they were doing. Um, it was a fascinating project, and I loved doing the work. And I ended up, I think the new book on photography is actually looking at similar questions, but from a, a different vantage point. So if the vantage point in the first book was on Jews who experienced the Soviet Revolution as Jews and were interested in figuring out how they could make the Soviet Revolution and the Communist Revolution also a revolution for Jews as such, these photographers, that wasn't their interest, that wasn't their question. These were acculturated Russian-speaking Jews who moved to Moscow pretty early and were probably the majority of Soviet Jews, actually. So acculturated, assimilated Russian-speaking Jews who ended up becoming really the backbone of a lot of Soviet culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you said that was your first book about the Yidd Yiddish culture. And then how did you come to... Um I should also say that I, I was also went to the uh, graduate program at the University of California, Berkeley, and highly recommend it. Very nice yes, place. Yeah, a great place to, yeah. to be a graduate. Um, and, no, I really met some really wonderful people there. I'm still in contact with a lot of them, and they're some of the bright lights of the field. So uh, go, go, go Bears. I guess I would say. Exactly. <laughs> um, so so uh, tell us how you came to write uh, Through Soviet Jewish Eyes. Well, it's, it's one of those I, – I, I like to think that the, the research projects that I take on, I usually have a moment of realizing that there's something fascinating out there that hasn't been worked on that I personally love. I'm a big believer that one's research should be driven by passion, um, not by the marketplace or and what an advisor says one should be writing on. Trust me, no one said, please go write on So in the same way, I'm not a photographer myself, but I love photography. And um, I was in Moscow doing research for a different project. Uh, the year was 2002. And I write about this in the introduction to the book. It, um, it was a summer, and there, photography in Russia was not usually seen as an art form. Actually, the idea of exhibiting photography not as documentation but as, as aesthetics or as art is, is pretty new. So the, um, the, you know, the city of 10 million people has two galleries devoted to photography. So I was in one of them one day in 2002, and the exhibition was called Women at War, which is a, uh, something that the Soviet Union was very proud of, mm -hmm. the role that women played in their war efforts. 
And the photography was beautiful. And I was, of course, admiring the beauty of the photographer. But as a historian, I'm also usually equally interested in the uh, the caption next to the photograph and who took it and why they took it and when they took it and where they took it, the, the, the historical context that surrounds the image. And I noticed that the names of the photographers on the walls were things like, and maybe your listeners will hear the same thing that I heard that day in 2002, Greenberg, Scheuchet, Baltermann, Kalde. They didn't sound like classically Russian. <laughs> there were no C's no. or yeah. And so I, I, um, I went through the exhibit and I approached the curator and I said in my in as, as sort of roundabout way as possible because one doesn't want to confront a curator and ask the question that's in your head, why did you hang a bunch of Jews on your wall? So I didn't ask that. I asked, you know, beautiful exhibition. I'm curious, did you make a choice to hang photographers who were all? And then I had this moment of pause. Do I use right. the sort of classic Soviet era euphemism exactly. of one particular nationality? Yeah. Or do I just say it? And I just said it. I said, did you choose to hang Jews, Jewish photographers on your wall? And she looked at me like I was a stupid kid. <laughs> and blunt. <laughs> completely incredulously and said, of course they're Jewish. But I didn't hang Jewish photographers. The photographers were all Jewish. Yeah. And it was that moment that I was, I was with someone. And I said, oh, my God, what, what is this story? This is a fascinating story. It shouldn't be surprising to anyone who has actually had a lot of experience with 1920s, 30s, 40s Soviet culture to learn that there were a lot of Jews in them. I mean, you can think of writers, um, filmmakers, pretty much any... Um, media field or culturally creative field, music. So it's not a surprise, actually, that photography um, had a lot of Jews among it. So I ended up coming back to the gallery after it closed and interviewing the curator for three hours, and thus was launched this book project. And it turns out that the curator was the granddaughter of one of the photographers in the book, Arkady Shaikit, um, who was born Avram Shmulevich Shoichet. Mm-hmm. So that, that's its own interesting story as well. Well, that's a great story of the genesis of the book. Actually, I um, I've never I've never had something quite like that happen to me. But uh, it is a is a terrific uh, it's a terrific example of how um, interest in a topic can be sparked. And I'm glad you carried through on it because it's a terrific book. Let me um uh, let me begin a discussion of the book by talking a little bit about photojournalism. Um, that the press more or less uh, broke down during the revolution and then had to be reconstituted under the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks had some uh, very definite notions of how the press should be handled. And one of the things you point out in the book is that uh, Jewish uh, photojournalists were very important in this. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the reconstitution of the photocorps and also the role that uh, Jews played in it. Right. So newspapers continued to be published throughout the, the Revolutionary and Civil War period, but their circulation shrinks. It becomes much more difficult and I was in particular interested in photojournalism, and newspapers are not publishing photographs in this period. They're, they're challenging to distribute. You know, I, I actually learned how photographs get from the click of a camera to a newspaper, and it's not easy, especially in this period. So it's not happening a lot in the period from, say, 1918 to 1922. Um, and it really doesn't start up again, so illustrated newspapers, until the early 20s. And um, they get started up, actually, by, by this core of, of activists who are all moved, they all moved to Moscow. And, in fact, one of the interesting things I found is that more or less none of the photographers who were important Soviet-era photographers were from Moscow. They all end up in Moscow because Moscow is the place where you have to be to be an important Soviet photographer. But none of them starts there. I actually found one who was born there. But even the pre-revolutionary photographers who built their career in the capital in the pre-revolutionary period in Petersburg, they all end up moving to Moscow in the 20s as well. So there's this mass migration of photographers to Moscow to be near the source of power, as one would want to be if you're wanting to be a well-known photojournalist. So a group of them, this group of three people, gets together and reestablishes an old pre-revolutionary magazine called Aganyok. Mm-hmm. which um, had existed in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, disappears for the years of the Revolution and Civil War, and then it's reestablished in April 1923. And what I found fascinating was, one, the popularity of an illustrated, this was a magazine, 
Um, so newspapers were still just getting back into the um, illustrated business. I would say really it's not until the mid-20s that newspapers start adding um, photographs back into uh, into their page layouts. But these um, early illustrated journals are fascinating, one, for their popularity. They circulated incredibly widely, um, but also, too, how early they're actually doing this work. So the Soviets learned a little bit about how to build an illustrated journal from German communists. But I like to tell my students, for example, that the United States didn't have its first equivalent, let's say, which I like to think of Aganyok as the, the life magazine of the Soviet Union. Yeah. But it's probably more accurate to say that life magazine is the Aganyok <laughs> of the United States um, because it's not established until 13 years later yeah. in the mid-30s. So there's this fascinating um, interest in the Illustrated Journal by the Bolsheviks. And then there's the whole social history about who are these people setting up this magazine. And they turn out to be, all, all three of these guys are young Jews who are not from Moscow. There are very few Jews in Moscow for its own historical reasons why there weren't a lot of Jews in Moscow until the World War One period. And they moved to Moscow because they want to be part of something amazing, something great. And um, each of these three guys has his own, and it happens to be all his, which is something else we can talk about, why these are all men. But um, they each have their own fascinating story about how they dip a little bit into Jewish politics. One in particular was very involved with the Bund. Um, and the founder of the magazine, Mikhail Kaltsov, who's born Mikhail Friedland from Kiev, he um, he moves to Petersburg in his teens and changes his name from Friedland to Kaltsov and is the one who actually starts the magazine. And for those who know about early Soviet history in the 20s and 30s, the name Kaltsov is sort of synonymous with the media, the Soviet media. Mm -hmm. he, he is the kingmaker of the Soviet media through the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. And he uh, he builds this whole coterie of photographers, many of whom happen to be Jewish, who move to Moscow and become really well-known photojournalists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit, because I think people won't know about the, uh, I guess what we call nationality policy under the early Bolsheviks, that is, until the rise of Stalin, um, because it, it really... Um, stands in contrast with what follows to some extent. It was, I, not to put a kind of artificial label on it, but it was quite liberal by our standards. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what the Bolsheviks thought about various nationalities. Sure, in the 1920s. Um, the, in 1924, if I'm remembering correctly, the, the government establishes this policy called nativization, or in Russian, koronizatsiya. And the idea is that each ethnic group should have its own cultural apparatus, cultural network in its own language. And the ideology behind this was it was meant to undo Russification under the czars. So these sort of heavy-duty anti-Ukrainian policies, um, anti-Polish policies of the czarist government were meant to be undone by the Bolsheviks. And in the 1920s, as, as numerous books will tell you, there was actually quite a bit of, uh, I'll, I'll use the word success, if the goal, if, if success is achieving the policies that were laid out, which is that newspapers in, you know, dozens and dozens of languages are produced. Publishing houses are opened in dozens and dozens of languages. Um, it's this fascinating experiment in what Terry Martin calls an affirmative action empire, which is meant to sort of, in theory, create a more level playing field for all ethnic groups in the Soviet Union and to rid itself of this imperial, russifying imperial structure. Uh, that'll change in the 1930s, as you mentioned, because um, as part of Stalinism, there's this drive towards having a lingua franca, Russian, so often at the expense of the ethnic group's native languages. So in the mid to late 1930s, a lot of these, I would call them very radical experiments in cultural policies end up um, end up being changed or or gotten rid of mm -hmm. in the mid to late 1930s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess I wanted to say at the same time, uh, Jews are in a particular uh, situation here because they're, uh, um, and then again, this is sort of, a, Americans don't tend to think of Jews in this way, but in, in the Russian context, it's both a religion and an ethnicity. And we know what the Bolsheviks thought about religion. Yeah, I mean, Jews are always, I mean, this, this, is not, this is not a particularly Soviet issue, that Jews are always a category challenge, um, because they don't fit neatly into any one category. So in the revolutionary period, uh, sorry, in the, uh, in the czarist period, Jews would have been lined up against other religious groups, so Orthodox, Catholic, Muslim, um, until the late 19th century, which, as a new wave of scholarship shows, the, the czarist government actually started to see Jews as a, a racial group or an ethnicity. 
Um, the Bolsheviks as a, as a, um, atheistic state, but one that is committed to ethnic diversity and of classifying Jews as an ethnic group, which was not at all a foregone conclusion. In other words, you can imagine there being, and there were, fights, sometimes behind closed doors, sometimes absolutely out in the open in published, in, in published venues about what should happen to Jews um, during a, so, a socialist revolution. On the one hand, if they're a religion, they should become atheistic and should merge with other ethnic groups, namely Russians. On the other hand, if they're an ethnic group, which is something that, for example, the Bund was arguing for, that they're their own nationality, to use their language, then Jews should be lined up against other ethnic groups like Ukrainians, Belarusians, Georgians, Latvians, and should have their own cultural apparatus established too. So the second is what ends up being the cultural policy that takes hold, and some of that has to do with Stalin and his, his role as the commissar of nationalities in the early period. But um, it nonetheless remains a category problem for the Bolsheviks because there are things that all these other groups have that Jews don't have, like territory, mm -hmm. like a single language. So there were huge fights in the early 19, late 19-teens and early 20s about whether Yiddish or Hebrew should be Jews' national language. Um, those battles don't last very long. Yiddish ends up being the one that, that wins the battle. Um, but that's an internal Jewish battle, for example. That's one of the things I discovered in my first book was that um, debates that had been raging within the Jewish world end up becoming state policy once the Bolsheviks take over and give one group of Jews power at the expense of another group of Jews. So, yeah, Jews as are, a, are inherently a category problem. And with these photographers, they are, let's call them a third category, because they're not interested. That's their, their lens upon looking at the Soviet Union is not through the lens of Jewishness. They're interested in the Soviet Revolution and in Soviet culture. Um, and so, for me, one of the most fascinating experiments was bringing these two narratives together, the seeing the revolution as a Jewish event and seeing the revolution not as a Jewish event together in the chapter that I did on these guys' photographs of Jewish experiments in things like agricultural colonies mm -hmm. or the Jewish autonomous region in the Far East called Birobijan. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out that more or less all of the photographers who photographed specifically Jewish experiments in socialism were Jewish. And for me, one of the most fascinating moments in the, in the book writing was um, watching one particular photographer named Georgi Zelmanovich is what his name was at birth and how he photographs under that name, and the last series of photographs that get published with him under that, by him under that name are his photographs of Birobijan, of the Jewish Autonomous Region in the Soviet Far East. And after that, he starts publishing under his gnome the camera. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. But yeah. The way a lot, a lot of these photographers end up playing with their names, as is common in the Soviet Union, and he becomes Georgi Zelma and he drops the Novich for whatever his reasons may be. Um, it was interesting when I, I listened to an interview with Zelma's son, Timur, who says very clearly that in 1931, Maxime Gorky, who was the sort of unofficial cultural commissar in the 1930s, he tells young, young Georgi, look, if you want to be a great photographer working for all of the great magazines, and in the 30s, the Soviet Union had some of the most important magazines in the world, I'm thinking in particular of USSR and construction. Yeah, you got to you got to do something about this name. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little too. I don't. I actually don't think he would have said Jewish. I think he would have said it's not Soviet enough, uh -huh. and it sounds too provincial. Is what I'm imagining Gorky would have said to him. Um, the problem with the story that Timur told me is that it's not true because he's still publishing under the name Zelmanovich past 1931. And the thing that I think crystallizes that sort of confrontation with his own Jewishness is photographing the Jewish experiments in socialism out in Birobijan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I should say that we have been lucky on this program to talk to several people who have dealt with this really uh, sort of fundamental point in the history of Jewish identity, and that is, and that occurred in Eastern Europe and also in the United States right around the 19-teens and 20s, and I'm thinking of uh, uh, Ken Moss, we talked to him, and Tony Michaels, and Johanna Petrovsky-Stern, all of whom have, have written about this moment where Jews were trying to decide whether Hebrew was their language, or whether Yiddish was their language, and whether they should secularize, or whether they should become socialists, or, you know, exactly what they should do, and it's a very, it's a very in interesting uh, 
period, I think, and it's, but I think it's important to kind of put it in the right context because it really was a sort of pivotal moment. It's, it's before Zionism, you know, that is post-World War II, Zionism sort of really uh, became kind of the center point. And obviously it's before the Holocaust, so there are a lot of people on the ground who are worried about these issues and really thinking deeply about them. And, you know, these photographers were definitely among them. Why, why don't we move the discussion forward a little bit? You talk about the first generation, and there's a second generation of these photographers. Who were they? So the second generation of these photographers were, for want of a better way of thinking about them, they never experienced the pre-revolutionary period. So many of them may have been born in the pre-revolutionary period, but they didn't come of age until the 1920s, and even some of them into the early 1930s. So their experience with with politics, let's start at a very broad level, is very different from that first generation that was that became photographers in the crucible of war and civil war in particular. So the first the first generation of photographers knew what pre-revolutionary photography was like, um, came of age during the revolution, and were and I like to think about them through the 1920s is they're the ones defining what Soviet photography is or should be, I should say, because um, it will change over time. But the debates in the press between these photographers, well, one, let's start with the fact that they're writing essays that are, I would call them relatively theoretical essays about what photography is. The second generation of photographers doesn't do that. They're not interested in the theoretical questions about photography because they're inheriting something that will end up being called Soviet photojournalism. Um, one could even call it Stalinist photojournalism or Stalin-era photojournalism. The questions about aesthetics, power, um, the relationship between art photography and photojournalism, they had been really hashed out in the 20s, and many of those issues had really been decided by the mid-1930s uh, at a policy level. So the second generation of photographers, and here I'm thinking of people like Yevgeny Khalday, who makes his name as an early, early photographer in his hometown of, at the time it was called Donetsk, or Stalina is what it ended up becoming. And um, he works for the local press out there. And he's a kid. You know, we're, we're talking, he's born in 1917. His first photograph is published in 1932. So he's 15 years old. And actually, he, the story he tells is that his first photograph was of the blowing up, the destruction of the big church in his town. And um, he doesn't actually talk about it as a moment of, of sadness. He talks about it as a moment of awakening, of somehow this, is, this may be what the Soviet Revolution is. His next most famous photograph is what might be called early socialist realism, or the sort of elevating of the worker and glorifying of the worker, with this beautiful photograph of a of a worker in front of a factory. So beautiful symmetry. It, it and to me it echoes a little bit with Margaret Bourke White's work. Not that he knew it, but it's that kind of geometry and, and constructivist um, imagery. So he starts photographing in the 30s, and like all these good photographers, he moves to Moscow. And like all of these photographers, the only time he ever really leaves Moscow is when he's on assignment. Um, sometimes during the war, they were on assignments that kept them away for long periods of time. But all of these guys, once they move to Moscow, Moscow becomes their permanent address, and they never leave until they die. So he's one. Um, Dmitry Baltermont, whom I can try to remember if you mentioned him in your yeah, in your introduction to the show, but he's he will become a famous photographer during World War II, and actually I would say his career really skyrockets in the much later period, in the 50s and 60s especially, when he becomes the photo editor for Avanyok. So these guys are a new generation of photographers who moved to Moscow in the mid-30s, sort of at the sort of the height of the building of Stalinism, and for them, Soviet photojournalism is about working with the state and working to build up the state and that that's the purpose of photojournalism. They didn't really know anything else, whereas the first generation, those were big questions. Is I mean, there was never a question about whether journalism should be in service of the state after the revolution. Um, I think that's that's pretty clear. But how it should be doing that or carrying out that charge was definitely debated in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And then what's going to happen with this second generation is they're mentored by the first generation of photographers, and then during World War II, they are going to become the most famous photographers. So I think of the war, which is really never studied in the history of Soviet photography. Um, most of the history of Soviet photography that I read to prepare for this project ends its story either in the late 20s, early 30s, or sometimes with 1937 and this big photo exhibition that takes place. Uh, but I didn't find any work on World War II photography. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and the irony is that's the period when the second generation really takes charge of the Soviet photojournalistic 
apparatus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before we go on to that, I want to uh, talk about a couple of things. Um, one of them is uh, the way in which this second generation conceived uh, of themselves. And I'm thinking of someone like um, Walter Mons in, in particular, because I know his work and like it very much. Um, it, my, my recollection is, is that you talked to some of his relatives, and they said that he uh, had basically rejected his Jewishness entirely, um, that he would not have thought of himself that way. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Was he unusual in that way? So the, the Jewish identity question is, is really um, fascinating, challenging, and, you know, it's hard to actually get at. So someone like Baltermans, let's, or let's take Baltermans, not someone like Baltermans, yeah. let's take him. He, um, he's born into a Jewish family, but it's clear relatively early on for him that Jewishness is not, it's not a motivating category for him. He doesn't take assignments to photograph Jewish things the way, for example, many of the first-generation photographers do, and even the way someone like Yevgeny Khalde, who is a contemporary of Baltermont in the second generation, do. So Baltermont is not particularly interested in those questions. And one of the other things I found fascinating is that these photographers all knew each other. Um, the Soviet Union often clustered people who worked in particular unions or particular groups in one big building, and the photographers, the photojournalists, were in one or a couple of big buildings. Baltimore didn't live with them. And in all of the interviews I did, it, there was this recurring theme of, oh, yeah, but Baltimore was not part of the group. Mm -hmm. So even at a social level, it's clear that he didn't hang out with these other Jewish photographers. And in my interviews with um, his daughter primarily, since she was the primary uh, primary source on his biography beyond the, the paper materials that I managed to find on his biography, was very insistent that Jewishness meant nothing to him. And she, she said that without me asking her, which I found odd. And I said to her, you know, I didn't ask you about it, Jewishness. Why are you here? Why did you mention that? She was like, thou doth protest too much right. what's going on here. Right. So, I, did, um, I didn't know he was murdered. Did anyone say he was murdered? <laughs> yeah, right. No, right. Exactly. So... So I said, well, what did his passport say? His passport said Jewish. And I said, so, all right. He may have not identified as a Jew, but the state would have identified him as a Jew. And, you know, if something had happened, if, if, God forbid, there had been a um, a uh, deportation of Jews, as, you know, had been planned in, in the 1950s, he would have been deported, right? Yeah. And she said, well, yes, but they didn't. Meaning... But there was no deportation, so it ended up not being an issue. Mm -hmm. So for her, she uh, she was really insistent that Jewishness was not not a category for him. And you know, at a certain level, I believe her. But I found it as interesting this insistence on denying Jewishness said something about these questions of identity. Um, take someone like Halde, however, also second generation, completely different trajectory. Um, he, during the war, he photographs. He photographs Jewishly, by which I mean his subject matter is explicitly Jewish. Um, and I'll, I can go back to talk about Baltermans' wartime photographs in a minute. But he, for example, goes um, during the liberation of Budapest and the Budapest ghetto in January 1945. He makes a side trip to the Budapest ghetto, which was, I am guessing, and I, I haven't found this, in the, never found this in the archives. Um, the archives were rich in terms of giving lists of what photographers should be photographing. But um, I never found them saying, please go photograph a Jewish ghetto. Probably not surprising that we didn't find that. It wouldn't have been central to the war effort. But he did go photograph them for um, whatever purpose he had. And then the interesting part to me is that they end up getting published in the Soviet Yiddish newspaper during the war. Mm -hmm. So it's people, these photographers have very different relationships with their Jewishness. And those, that's just two examples of how one never identifies with it, and the other deeply identifies with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I mean, I think it comes right to a question which you deal with squarely in the beginning of the book, and I very much admire you for this, and that is uh, whether there is a, um, a Soviet Jewish eye. If you had ph photographs arrayed in front of you, would you be able to tell in any sense? Right. Um, now that's a, I, I think that's kind of a, I think that's kind of a false test to be honest with you um, because there are many things that we don't recognize until they are pointed out to us that it's hardly uncommon for humans but maybe we could just talk a little bit about what it means to bring a kind of cultural or religious perspective to uh, something that appears as um, objective I hate that word objective right. as photography but I'm you do say some really interesting things about it and and I, I would like I think the uh, listeners would like to hear them well and I, I want to start by saying that 
the search for the, so the fact that Jews are photographers, for me, that's an interesting historical fact. And I'm interested first and foremost in how that came to be. In other words, why did Jews get into photography? And that's not, by the way, a Russian and Soviet phenomenon. That's a, that's a global phenomenon yeah. that Jews are very active in the field of photography. Um, and for your listeners, that's, that may be surprising, but all it's going to take is for you to think about a couple of the most famous photographers that first come to your head, and I'm going to put money on the fact that they're probably Jewish mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Fine. So there are some particularities about the Russian and Soviet case. In the Russian case, for example, photographers um, could, in the pre-revolutionary period, had um, residency rights beyond the pale of settlement. And most Jews did not have residency rights. So I, I got very interested in these basic social historical facts about what might have drawn Jews to the profession. Now, the question is, does the fact that they're Jewish matter? Does it affect how they photograph? Precisely. Now, I, I think the answer is it can't not have affected how they photographed. They were experiencing the world differently. The fact that one has to deny one's Jewishness the way Baltimore did has to have affected what he did. Um, and as my colleague Anna Sternschitz talks about it, there's there's no such thing as an encounter that would not have been affected by someone's Jewishness, mm-hmm. either either the subject, the person being photographed, or the photographer himself. Mm-hmm. Now the question is this Jewish eye question, and this I, I do my best to basically not answer the question because <laughs> I find it I find the idea that one can and I and always ask this whenever I talk about the photography that I present in the book. Someone in the audience, and I now preempt it, someone will always ask, so the, there's two photographers at, at, a, at Majdanek, let's say, because I write a lot about the liberation of Majdanek, mm-hmm. which was a very important event for the Soviet press. Put up a Jewish photograph and put up a non-Jewish photograph, and let's see if we can guess which is which. Mm-hmm. And this is effectively what people want me to do, which you were, you were alluding to, and you were also alluding to the fact that that's a really problematic way of thinking about photography. Yeah, no, I think that's all wrong. No, yeah, that's all Well, it's all wrong, but but ultimately where it leads us to is Wagner's notion of Jewish music. I mean, I have to, I have to say that the the question of something essentially Jewish aesthetic aesthetically of an essentially Jewish aesthetics should strike your listeners as problematic thinking about it. Now, sure. does that mean that a Jew who approaches Majdanek, a Jewish photographer who approaches Majdanek is not experiencing that moment differently than a non-Jew? No. That's certainly true, right. as would be the case if a Pole, a Polish Soviet photographer, were approaching the camp. Everyone is going to have a very different experience, and I think whether or not Walter Mons owned it, the fact that a lot, he, he ends up photographing, and we haven't actually gotten into this in the story, but these guys all end up photographing the Holocaust, yeah. uh, which is the sort of heart of the book. But his first photographic experience with the Holocaust, this is Walter Mons now, is in a city called Kerch, mm-hmm. down down in the south of Russia, and he knows that this field of dead people, and, you know, men, women, children, the elderly, we're talking 7,000, he knows that most of them are Jewish. And we know that he knows that. Now, I don't have a diary from Baltimore from there, but we do have one from Chaldei, who was also there. They were both there. Chaldei's diary talks about the Jewishness of the scene, how there were so many um, how he collected his information, so he would interview uh, survivors, he would interview townspeople. So whether or not Baltimore was writing that down, we know that everyone at that site knew what was going on. Um, Baltimore doesn't write about it, and the way it ends up getting published is the story gets a little bit universalized, a little bit. It gets universalized in its first Russian-language instantiation, where they published the fact that 7,000 they say the language is there's 7,000 people shot by the Nazis. These are people, some, in one article that comes out in March 1942, um, it talks about um, people of a particular nationality. Mm-hmm. That's, that's early usage of that euphemism. And I think it's the war that really starts developing that euphemistic language. And another article talks about Jews among other groups. And another one talks about peaceful Soviet residents of the city of Kerch. Mm-hmm. So, in these early images of what we now call the Holocaust, you start to see how the press handles what they're discovering. For Baltimore, that experience has to have affected him differently than someone who wasn't a Jewish photographer. Now, here's the irony. The three published photographers, I don't know if it's ironic, actually. The three published photographers who photographed Kirch, so Evgeny Haldeh, Dmitry Baltimore, and Mark Redkin, are all Jewish. Mm-hmm. So it's actually challenging to do this, the test 
of putting up the uh, the non-Jewish photographer's vision of the scene in, in front of you, because more or less the same thing would have happened at Majdanek. Uh, the, the press's major photographers at Majdanek, one was not Jewish, Oleg Knoring, uh, Oleg Knoring, um, but the others were all Jewish. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's an experiment I don't like to do. Yeah. Um, I don't think it actually tells us anything about photography, and I find much more powerful the the, the idea of experience and what these people would have been experiencing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, I I agree with you completely. I don't consider it a, a really a, a legitimate question because it doesn't go to exactly what you're after here, and that is the experience of the photographers. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the historical context of what they shot. You mentioned lists of things that the Soviet government wanted them to shoot during the war. Um, mm-hmm. And and we know that the Soviets were uh, uh, that that the authorities knew that atrocity um, uh, photographs and news about atrocities could be could be used, and they were instructed to go out and and find these things. Not that they were hard to find, is that right? They were, yes. Um, actually, it was one of the surprise. I had many surprising research findings, as one would if one picking a topic that has never been worked on. It's not hard to come up with with new material. Yeah. Um, but piece one, for example, I was sitting in the Library of Congress with the entire run of Aganyok in front of me. Wow, that is so great. Plop, plops down for a long <laughs> afternoon of really boring, flipping through pages, looking at the photographic record of Bore, war. Boring? What do you mean boring? I would love to do that. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> as long as I had a... So the problem is you can't bring your cup of coffee. Nope, no the coffee. Room. So, um, so I was, you know, I was hunkered down, ready to go. Uh, expecting to find really very little imagery of what we, and I'm, the way I'm phrasing this, by the way, for your listeners, is the way, what we now call the Holocaust. It obviously wasn't called that right. during the war. Um, the, the press used frame, words like Nazi atrocities, um, tragedy, but atrocities tended to be the primary um, lens. Fascist atrocities tended to be probably the most common, commonly used um, locution in the press. Uh, but uh, for some reason, I didn't think they would have been publishing this material. Certainly, the American press was not publishing anything about this. The first dead dead soldier, forgetting about civilian, the first dead soldier published in the American press is not until 1943. Hmm. So, you know, you know, forgive me for thinking that the Soviet press might have not wanted to publish lots of their own dead people. That's not really great for the war effort, right. I imagined. So I sit down and I open first edition of Aganyok after the war with Germany breaks out, which is... Um, the, the war breaks out June 22nd. The first edition is June 25th. And I, I also like to point out that the Soviet Union had been at war before June 22nd, but it was not a war that they were very proud of, um, fighting the Finns and conquering parts of eastern Poland and, um, and rolling into the Baltics. But in the Soviet Union, the war, capital T, capital W, starts June 22nd. So the first edition is June uh, 25th. And I literally, I open this giant volume of Aganyok, and boom, there's there's a Holocaust photograph. Mm-hmm. Opening edition, yeah. opening page even. So clearly the Soviet Union was not squeamish about publishing Nazi atrocities. They did it on the first day, and they did it more or less until the last day of the war, May, May 9th, 1945. So the Holocaust, or, or what we're calling the Holocaust, Nazi atrocities were an integral part of the um, media's effort, the media's war efforts. People often use the word propaganda, and I, if the goal, if the point about propaganda is to motivate your population to want to fight in the war, then absolutely, this is propaganda. Um, in my experience, the word propaganda usually has a negative valence, but um, if, it, well. if we keep it neutral and understand that it's about a state wanting to have a certain effect on its population, then yes, absolutely, this material is being published propagandistically. Um, and then behind the scenes, I ended up finding a, a really great treasure trove of material between a photographer and his editor in a private archive. And none of this material, by the way, I really found in the official state archives, which is where anyone who's, who works on Soviet history, they often start in the sort of central archives in Moscow. And usually there's, there's too much material. This time there was very little, and it turns out that most of the material actually was kept by the photographers themselves, which is its own interesting story. So I found one, one photographer, his, he had kept all of his correspondence between himself and his editor, his photo editor. And that's where you see every three months the photo editor would send out to all of the photographers that he was managing on all the fronts a list of the current subjects that are being demanded by the central political administration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, usually things like, you know, good heroic Soviet soldier, women taking care of the home front, taking nursing, I should say, women sort of taking care of wounded Soviet soldiers. So women had their role. Um, women fighter pilots, there was, that was actually, that popped up frequently. 
Um, and then almost always in, in these circulars that were sent around to all the photographers, these notifications, point seven was always something about uh, Nazi atrocities. Mm-hmm. And by Nazi atrocities, they were interested both against people, but also against cultural treasures. They were really interested, for example, when they liberated um, Tolstoy's hometown just outside of, um, of Moscow. That was a major um, newspaper media event. So that's not, not about people, but that was about sort of the symbolic markers of, in this case, I'd say Russian national identity it became very important for these photographers as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. One of the other things that I learned in your book, I, I, I kind of knew this, but I, I, I never really seen it uh, uh, so well demonstrated, is that to the Soviet population circa 1941, it, it was uh, no surprise that the Germans or the fascists, as they would have said, were anti-Semitic and that they would have been able to read between the lines here. Right. And, and understand right. completely that these atrocities were against Jews. Is that right? And maybe you could talk a little bit about the history of this Soviet's use of German anti-Semitism as a propagandistic tool, because it, it's in fashion, and it's out of fashion, and it's back in fashion. Exactly. So it's in fashion. So it's in fashion for the Soviet press, and not just the press, but the Soviet media in general, which includes the film industry, to be talking about German anti-Semitism. And, and, fa- and you know, there's a fine line between calling it German and calling it fascist, and he goes back and forth at different times. Um, in the late 30s, so, so 36, 37, 38, at the height, I would say, of, of sort of war scares and what um, Jan Plomper once called swastika-phobia, the fear of, <laughs> of everything German, of everything Nazi Germany in the Soviet Union. I like that term. Um, that disappears in the period of the pact between Germany and the Soviet Union, you don't see a lot of that kind of talk, which I think makes sense, should make sense to your listeners, that a country with whom you have a non-aggression pact, you don't want to be demonizing anymore in your press. It doesn't mean they're not actually still collecting this material or thinking this. Um, in the Yiddish press, for example, there are several Yiddish writers who are writing not flattering things about Germany in that period of the pact, which is also its own interesting story. Then in 1941, you know, boom, the war breaks out and Germany reveals itself once again to be the enemy of communism. But the point is, people had had three or four years before to know that the Germans were not nice to the Jews. And, that, and I guess more particularly that they would, will, would be meeting out special treatment for Jews. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that the Soviet press doesn't want to emphasize that, I mean, I think if spending enough time with this material, it makes sense why the Soviet press would not be constantly mentioning the murder of Jews. Um, it's not it's not going to be great for your war effort to get Ukraine, Soviet Ukrainians, for example, to necessarily want to fight a war. It's really not in that discourse about them. It's about the Germans hating the Jews. So that's not a language that the Soviet Union is going to want to use right. to mobilize the whole country for its war effort. Um, we also know behind the scenes that there was um, not necessarily unanimous support for the Soviet Union within the Soviet Union among its own citizenry. So how do you convince a population that had been suffering through things like the Ukrainian famine or the Great Terror in the 30s, how do you get all of them on board with the war? You have to convince them, one, that your country's cause is just, and two, that the enemy is worse. So I think that's why they're constantly publishing these atrocity images and not marking them out as Jewish, because the point is that these could be targeting anybody. So therefore, you should be fighting in this war effort. Mm-hmm. So the presumption then is that your average reader of Pravda, say, and we'll just use that since it was the, the largest circulating newspaper, although the Army's newspaper, Red Star, actually started to rival it during the war and actually probably became the most important voice during the war, was the military's newspaper. Um, your average reader probably could have read between the lines and understood what was being talked about and would have understood that peaceful Soviet citizens were that because Jews were that, too. Yep. Um, I also like to point that out, that calling someone a peaceful Soviet citizen doesn't, doesn't mean that Jews are not included in that rubric. Um, it just means you're not calling out the ethnic dimension of who is being killed. Yeah. Yeah. Now, by the liberation period... Um uh, when they start to come across uh, places like uh, Maidanic and so on and so forth, it becomes unavoidable, uh, I, I guess, to, to talk about these, the Jewishness. Yes, what, right. And how, how do the photographers in the Soviet say, how do they deal with this? Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, uh, the, I think there are several things that are important, but you just mentioned Maidanic in particular, which let's take that since that's the first liberation of, of a Nazi extermination camp, sort of an explicitly one of the six extermination camps. There were camps on Soviet soil, 
um, plenty of them. There were ghettos in Soviet soil. But in terms of these big um, extermination centers, there were six located in Poland. So Majdanek posed several interesting challenges for these photographers. We have to think about what they were photographing up until they got there. They were primarily photographing ravines or empty fields or anti-tank ditches full of remnants, full of dead bodies, full of of um, clothing. I mean, just horrible scenes. But really, one, not about survivors, and two, not about permanent installations dedicated to mass murder. They were certainly mass murdering, but they were doing it sort of, one could be forgiven for thinking that it was more or less spontaneous. Um, but the other big difference about Majdanek is that it's actually in Poland not in the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. which creates really interesting rhetorical challenges for the press. How do you figure a war that had been about German, uh, had been about fascism against communism, and in particular, actually, during the war, Germany against Russia and the Soviet Union, you're now in Poland. So how do you make, how do you talk about Majdanek in that context? And what they end up doing, what the press ends up doing, is even more universalizing the story and talking about fascism's crimes against all humanity. So it's early, early locution of crimes against humanity. And at a place like Majdanek, they list. Um, Jews are usually included in the list, but you've got Dutch, you've got Poles, you've got French, you've got all sorts of people who were murdered at Majdanek, most of whom were Jewish, but um, not all of whom were Jewish, which is also important to remember. Um, and then the last thing that's interesting about Majdanek is that among those six extermination camps, it was probably the most um, multi-ethnic or multinational. Mm-hmm. So unlike, say, Treblinka, which was some 95% Jewish were, were killed there, I mean, huge numbers, Auschwitz, which was 90%, Majdanek was not. Majdanek was more like 50%. So the Soviets also were not confronting the really the particularity of the Jewishness of the event. Mm-hmm. So it does pose interesting challenges, and ultimately, the um, on the ground, what they end up doing is they they really render these sites Polish. And part of the reason why the Liberating Red Army re- renders these places Polish is because they're liberating Poland at that moment. Yeah. And Poland has been you know, trapped between two really violent regimes that has treated Poland really poorly mm-hmm. for the past, let's just let's be in a small case, for the past four or five years, since 1939, when they divided Poland, basically, you know, Stalin and Hitler divided Poland in half and had their spoils. Right. You know, Poland doesn't know which way it's supposed to be turning, so the Soviet Union wants to make very clear which side they're going to want to be on. Yeah. So Majdanek gets figured as a Polish site. There's a Catholic funeral at the site, and as part of the, um, the memorial process that takes place after the liberation of Majdanek, and they end up making a film at Majdanek, it ends up showing in Polish movie houses in November 1944, where the, the point is that you're you're supposed to be bearing witness to your sort of Polish martyrs who were murdered by the fascists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, I want to I want to move forward just a little bit because we're uh, running out of time. Uh, there's at least one photograph uh, by one of these fellows that pretty much uh, every American uh, who knows anything about the Second World War will have seen. And that is uh, the raising of the red flag on the Reichstag. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, it? You have some very interesting things to say about it. I, I hate to say it, I'm a cynic, so I wasn't yeah. particularly surprised by them, but, but please go ahead. Well, all right, so the fact that you're saying you're a cynic it reveals both something about the story, but also about the about way... About me? No, 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 about the way, because this... Marshall, it's not just you who is a cynic and presumes that photographs are... Um, I'm going to use the word staged right now for your listeners. I, I prefer to think of them as composed, and all photographs sure. are composed. Yeah, now, photojournalism is its own interesting genre. It was during World War II that the American um, photographic community really established a field that would be called photojournalism as something distinct from photography that had its own rules, um, where one wasn't, for example, supposed to shape the scene to fit the story you wanted to tell. The scene was supposed to tell you the story, if that makes sense. It wasn't supposed to go the other way around. Um, and that's really a World War II invention. So Robert Kappa famously, I mean, now the, the big story about Robert Kappa's most famous photograph of the fallen soldier during the Spanish Civil War, um, the questions now are whether he composed slash staged that photograph. It wasn't uncommon. So getting back to the particularly famous image that you're referring to about how Yevgeny Halde 
was at the liberation of Berlin. At the liberation, we don't call it liberation. We, well, I mean, we, we should. Uh, I, 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 I can't. I can't. Uh, I have to note that that's Robert Cappanay. What was his? Re- what yeah. Was, yeah. Right. Uh, free, he was Friedman, wasn't he? Yes. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah another another one of yeah. our, our Jewish photographers. Right. And this story about him changing his name is is also fascinating for for a different podcast. Yeah. But Halday um, marches into Berlin with the the um, conquering Russian troops, and he uh, he takes this photograph at the top of the Reichstag which um, a couple of things I like to point out about this canonical photograph. One, there were other Soviet photographers up there photographing with him, and we have to remember that these photographers compete with each other for the best photograph, um, depending on which press outlet they're working for. And he was working for a wire service. He was working for TASS. So he has, his photograph would have had the widest circulation because it would have gone out on the wires. But there are others up there with him. One. Two, there's still fighting going on in Berlin. Um, and actually, I, I just learned recently that there was still fighting in the Reichstag. Yeah, it, looked pretty, it looks pretty hairy in the photograph, actually. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's not like they're just sort of casually climbing up the nice staircase to take these beautiful arresting photographs from the top of the Reichstag. Every time they're liberating a new place or conquering a new place, um, they put a red flag up. And as Halde likes to tell the story of, we ran out of red flags in Berlin. <laughs> We've been putting so many of them up that, that he had to fly back to Moscow to get a new one made for him. So he gets up, he tells this one soldier who he climbs up to the top of the wave, holds the flag out over the edge, he photographs, takes, you know, clicks the camera, and it's not exactly the image that Halde wanted, because he really wanted to capture the smoldering city in the background, and it wasn't captured in the beginning. You got the ruined Reichstag and the flag, but not the smoldering city. So he asks the guy to move a little further out, move a little further out, finally the soldier's like, look, Zhenya, I'm done. I don't want to fall <laughs> off the edge of the Reichstag. <laughs> So he asks another soldier who had climbed up there, can you hold his feet so that he's a little less nervous about falling off the edge? And we're talking to his death, plummeting to his right. death, obviously. So fine, he holds his feet, clicks the camera, great. He gets the picture, the photographs, the way they got transmitted generally during the war was by airplane. So these guys, possibly not in Berlin, but many times they would have their own sort of field um, studios in which they developed their their film and then sent their developed film back to their editors. Mm-hmm. It's not clear whether Halde would have done that in you know smoldering Berlin, but got it on a plane eventually, <laughs> sent it back to Moscow. His editor, you know, Jania, we've got a problem with your photograph. Your soldier holding his foot, holding the flag bearer's foot. He's wearing two watches, Jania, and that's a problem. <laughs> Why is it a problem? It's a problem because you don't have everyone is given one army issue watch, not. <laughs> so he, this guy was clearly a looter, and the uh, the editor, I would say, wisely recognized that the Soviet Union did not want to have what would become its iconic photograph with a looter in it. So Jania pulls out, you know, does old-fashioned photoshopping of the photograph and etches out the second watch, and then it eventually circulates on May 13th. Is the first time I found it actually published. So you know, almost two weeks after he takes the picture. Uh, so his scoop doesn't end up becoming a scoop, but his image does become the iconic image of the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany. Okay. And it is reproduced more widely. I think you were right that certainly anyone familiar with World War II would have seen this image um, on book covers, in magazines. I mean, it is probably the most widely produced World War II image coming out of the Soviet Union, period. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely sure it is. It's, 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 you know, it's a fantastic shot, too. You know, it's got depth and drama. I mean, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's a great, That's great, the great thing photograph. We should, we should make sure to remind your listeners that, for the most part, these were actually really talented. Yeah, no, this is a really, yeah, really great photograph. Um, however, it was composed. I like that word very much. Um, I want to talk just a little bit before I let you go about what happened to these guys after the war, and particularly um, during the the period of um, uh, the, of, of the of the of the period in which um, you know, there was some evident anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So the Zhdanovshina, this sort of which I think at a broadest level one could call a mixture of xenophobia and cultural conservatism, um, ends up affecting the Jews, particularly in the peak of, of this campaign from 1948, more or less, till Stalin's death, to be honest, called the Anti-Cosmopolitan Campaign, which starts, one would usually start that moment with, um, with the murder of Solomon Mikhoyles, who had been the head of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, which is, again, its own interesting topic, which we don't have time for now, but it was this committee that was established during the war to 
sort of helped build relationships between Soviet Jewry and American Jews to, mm-hmm. to bolster the war effort. Mikhoil is quote unquote accidentally run over in January 1948. Most people sort of on a subterranean level, know that he wasn't just run over by a car. People people like Mikhoyles are not accidentally run over by a car in the middle of a road on the outskirts of Minsk. Um, but that's the way the government treats it. He has a full state funeral, but it's the beginning of this state response to the fact that sort of the curator in the gallery that I met in 2002 clearly knew, which was that a lot of Soviet culture is being produced by people whose passports say Jew on them. Mm-hmm. And that was not going to be acceptable in the post-war period, certainly not acceptable to Stalin, um, but I don't think only Stalin. This is not just the Stalinist issue. And from that point forward, you have this rolling back of all of these Jewish cultural forms in the Soviet Union. So the um, Yiddish theater closes down in 1949, the newspaper, the publishing houses, all of these um, artifacts, let's call them, of that nativization policy from the 20s for Jews that produced all of this culture in Yiddish, ends up closing down in 48 and 49. Um, a number of these most important cultural activists are arrested in early 1949, and they'll end up being killed in 1952. Um, and for people who study um, Jews, August 12, 1952 is also marked on their martyrological calendar as yeah. the date when a bunch of these Jewish activists are shot, in a, most likely in a prison near Mos- in Moscow. But um, for the photographers, none of them were killed, but they were definitely affected by this anti-cosmopolitan campaign. Um, interestingly, though, not uniformly, which I also find a very compelling story to be told here, that, for example, Baltimore, his career actually improves. Um, in the late 40s and early 50s, he gets hired by Aganyok, by the sort of most important illustrated journal, and his career keeps escalating until he's named editor, mm. like the lead photo editor. Um, Simeon Friedland, who was another photographer, the cousin of Mikhail Kaltsov, he seems to do okay during this period as well. I actually looked through his archive pretty extensively to look at how often these people were getting published, uh, their photographs published in the late 40s and early 50s, and he seems to do okay. He doesn't lose his job, for example. Now take someone like Yevgeny Khalde, who's not alone in losing his job with Cass in 1948. And in his archive, there's all of this correspondence between him and um, other uh, various publications. So he lost his staff job, which as, as anyone who's lost their job knows, then you become a consultant. So he became a freelance photographer, and a freelance photographer basically has to shop himself around for work. So you see him shopping himself around to various second-tier presses, and they, the ones that end up publishing him will publish him, but frequently they'll say, without your name on it. Oh, boy. Um, so there was this very interesting way that these photographers who lose their jobs try to navigate this period of, of really harsh anti-Semitic repression, state-sponsored. Um, they None of them, again, dies, which I think is important to note, because that is often the way we think of this period. And remember, none of them was particularly invested in Yiddish culture. So I'm not convinced that any of them would have cared, for example, that the Yiddish newspaper would have closed down. But it does affect them, um, many of them lose their jobs. And someone like Halde does not get hired back on a staff until 1957, when he gets a job with Pravda. So his story, I think, is illustrative of this period from, let's say, 48 until, really until the Khrushchevian de-Stalinization begins, 56, where these guys are really struggling. Um, and someone like Zelma is afraid for his life, actually, at one point, because of some of the photographs he's taken. And his son actually tells about how he was destroying material in 51 and 52, after he was called in by the NKVD for an interrogation. Mm-hmm. So um, it's definitely not an easy time. And this is one of those moments where Jewishness, the Jewishness of the photographers matters most. And again, it's not the aesthetics of the photography. It's their experience of living in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you do them honor uh, today by uh, mentioning them and discussing them and talking about their work in this fine book. And, and I'm really glad that you wrote it. I'm sorry to say that we're just about out of time, but I have to uh, reserve the last couple of minutes to ask our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? So, like my photography project, which got started in a moment of passion and wondering how something could possibly be, the new project that I'm working on got started in a fantastic artist's loft in Berlin uh, about two years ago, having dinner with the person who I thought was 
one of the sort of religious Jewish religious leaders of Berlin. And over the course of the evening, she starts telling me about how she's East German by background. I had never met this woman. So I learned that she's East German, which I already find interesting. She's a Jewish East German, so interesting fact number one. Two, she was very involved in Yiddish theater. Hmm. What? I'm thinking, Yiddish <laughs> theater in East Germany? Yeah. How is this possible? Yeah. And then three, she starts telling me the story of her mother, who is a Dutch Yiddish singing cabaret performer from from Amsterdam, who wow. survives the Holocaust with Anne Frank, watches Anne Frank die, tells um, Anne Frank's father, Otto Frank, who also survived the war, what the fate of his daughters was, and ends up moving with her husband to communist East Germany in 1952, at the exact same time that the anti-cosmopolitan campaign was happening that I was just describing, to become the official Yiddish diva of communist East, of, of really the communist world, um, in particular East Germany. And I, I was one of those moments where, like in the gallery, although she didn't look at me like a stupid kid this time, I'll give her that, she recognized that the story she was telling me was sort of unbelievable, literally. So as a historian, I didn't believe her. <laughs> so the, the, my first foray into this new research project, which is going to be sort of two parts family biography, one part micro history about um, Yiddish anti-fascism, communism, and um, and post-war Germany, especially East Germany, was I went I was in Amsterdam and I just wanted to see if they were really on the same. Is it possible that this one really was the one who knew Anne Frank? And I found the train records of the last train out of the um, Dutch transit camp called Vesterbork. And sure enough, both of their names were on the transit camp list. So wow. I know that they knew each other. And then, I, you know, I've now subsequently started doing new research for this project. And it's absolutely true that um, so this, is, this, is, this person is a Holocaust survivor who builds Yiddish culture in communist East Germany and becomes really the bearer of Anne Frank's memory in the communist world. David, I've got two words for you. Movie rights. Exactly. <laughs> you really can't lose a material like that. I have to say it. That is a yeah. Right really, that's wow. What I'm very envious. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, it's it's. Um. I guess the last piece in closing is that it, as I was finishing up research for the photography project, I remember it was late '07, early '08, and I had done my last archival trip to Moscow, and I had had a really hard time being in Moscow. And some of your listeners may relate to this. Um, Putin-era Moscow was not a really great place for me as a researcher to want to be. Things that had been um, de-secretized in the 90s were becoming re-secretized in the period that I was working on. So thank God I actually didn't need a lot of materials in official archives. But um, police presence on the streets, I actually had my documents checked a couple of times um, because I guess mine might think I have slightly dark skin. And I got on a plane thinking, this is a really hard place to be. I'm wondering if my next research project needs to find a different way mm -hmm. to interact with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And um, not more than two months later, I had that evening in, wow. in wow. Berlin. Well, that's, that's and I realized that um, this was a way to be engaged with the mm -hmm. questions that I have been interested in for a long time of communism and Yiddish and Jewish culture in the Soviet Union by spending time in Berlin and Amsterdam. No, I think it's great. So. I, think it's, I think it sounds like an absolutely fantastic project, and I, and I can't wait to talk to you about it on New Books in History when um, when you finish it. So I, I just want to say, David, thanks very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Marshall. I okay. appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with David Schneer about his new book, Through Soviet Jewish Eyes, Photography, War, and the Holocaust. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>